little more than two years ago, Pete Buttigieg rocketed to political stardom when he emerged from seemingly nowhere to become a leading Democratic candidate for president. He had, to say the least, an unusual resume. A combat vet who served in Afghanistan, openly gay, and mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a town with a population barely over 100,000. Yet Buttigieg stunned the political world by winning the first out of the block Iowa caucus, at least in terms of delegates. Buttigieg didn't get the nomination, of course, but he was tapped by President Biden to serve as his Secretary of Transportation, a job that puts him in the middle of some of the country's most pressing issues, from soaring gas prices to shoring up decaying infrastructure. He's also got some thoughts on the wave of anti-LGBTQ laws being passed by state legislatures across the country. We'll talk to him on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So before uh, Biden was sworn in, we had a whole bunch of his senior, of the people who became his senior officials, from Ron Klain, chief of staff, to uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, to John Kerry, the climate advisor, were all- uh, Tony Blinken. uh, Tony Blinken, of course, now the secretary of state. They were all on skullduggery before- But now, for the first time, we're going to have an actual senior Biden official cabinet member on the pod. And I have to say, the timing is pretty good because Buttigieg is uh, right in the middle, as I said, of what is perhaps the number one political issue in the country right now, and that is soaring gas prices and what we do about it. And also, at the same time, we have on the cultural front, all these anti-gay laws uh, and transgender laws being passed. Uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida just signed one in the other day. And uh, obviously, these would strike home for the first openly gay member of a cabinet. So I think our timing is pretty good to have Buttigieg for this episode. Yeah, it's uh, it is good, and you know, preparing for this interview and thinking about uh, Buttigieg, I, I will say, it's not quite right to say that he's leading a charmed life in this administration. He's in the middle of a lot of controversies that you've alluded to, but he is kind of in the catbird seat, you know, among all of the cabinet members. This is the guy who is, you know, both touting and closely associated with probably the biggest legis, certainly the biggest legislative success of the Biden administration. This infrastructure bill, you know, he is uh, handing out hundreds of billions of dollars across the country to states and to cities and to localities. He's building relationships with officials in all of these places. And for someone who has a very bright political future, given how successful he was uh, when he sort of exploded on the scene um, in the 2020 election, he picked the right job. You're saying there will be political dividends down the road? <laughs> You're so cynical, Isikoff. <laughs> right. I'm so cynical that I immediately am looking at the kind of the dark clouds on the horizon because there is no way that you can be in charge of spending half a trillion dollars and guarantee that there's not going to be waste 
fraud and abuse, that there's not going to be some horrible project to come out of this. And as soon as and if the Republicans take control of the House of Representatives last year, you can imagine the target on his back for a series of congressional inquiries into misspending. Can you say the word Solyndra? <laughs> or Fast and the Furious? You know, <laughs> or Bridge be, to Nowhere. It, it, must, be, right. it must yeah. feel wonderful to be building and doing all of these sort of things right now. But I just am just looking forward to or not looking forward to the anticipating, the, the anticipating <laughs> right. the almost certainly. Although if they don't go after him, it might be a sign of uh, of whether or not he doesn't have uh, Good, not to mention prospects. all the Republicans who are taking credit for these uh, these infrastructure projects in their states and districts after voting against the yeah. infrastructure. A, a law, lot of them are just right? they're falling over themselves, you know, trying to take credit for all of the good that that's being done, even while they they just you know absolutely tried to kill the bill. <laughs> But before we get to the secretary, we should take note of the extraordinary ruling by Judge David Carter in California this week that it was more likely than not that former President Trump violated the law when he sought to obstruct the uh, congressional certification of uh, Biden's election. This was in the context of a lawsuit brought by John Eastman, the uh, far-right conservative uh, law professor who had laid out in memos, uh, you know, how the Trump world can stop Biden from taking office. Now, it was the first time a federal judge has gone this far. This is obviously going to uh, put pressure on the U.S. Justice Department. But we should note that the standard that Judge Carter used in his pretty meticulous 44-page ruling, I think it was, was a preponderance of evidence standard, more likely than not. That's like 50% plus one, right? That doesn't not, leave you in jail. Yeah. Not, right. Yeah. Not the beyond a reasonable doubt standard you need to bring criminal charges. Right? Or even the probable cause standard, uh, which you know you would need for a search warrant or, or that sort of thing. But you know it, w what it will do is, I think, probably put some more pressure on uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to, to look seriously at, at potentially charging Trump. And also, um, I think, is going to make it much more likely that the January 6th committee uh, will make a criminal referral. Um, you know, they have been, and, and Liz Cheney has openly spoken about this, have been um, looking to kind of make a, a criminal case that they could then refer to the Justice Department. And if there was any doubt they were going to do it, I think um, a lot less doubt now that a federal judge has kind of given them his seal of approval uh, that there was potentially um, criminal conduct here, or more likely than not. So I have to make my uh, my usual disclaimer or disclosure that I acted as a consultant to some of the groups that filed bar complaints against John Eastman. Who so is if a, you could who, talk, you could take credit for this judicial <laughs> ruling, but, but you can't. But right? I can't. And I and yeah. but I want to just say he, he there was something he that the judge Carter said at the end of his uh, decision that really kind of I thought was worth teasing out. He said, Dr. Eastman and President Trump launched a campaign to overturn a democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. Their campaign was not confined to the ivory tower. It was a coup in search of a legal theory. 
But I want to add one other thing, which is that as newsmaking, as his decision was, at the end of the day, this case was about whether or not Eastman could assert attorney-client privilege over a small set of documents. And so basically all that happened in this case, despite this you know, kind of breathtaking sort of language that Judge Carter had, was that Eastman is now going to have to turn over several hundred documents to the January 6th committee, but a few other documents have been held back. So this was a, a, a millimeter yeah, but we don't know. I mean, we, we, he will have to turn over, you know, it's it's 100 plus emails. We don't know what's in those emails. And um, they may be very revealing about the alleged conspiracy, who was involved in it, how involved uh, Trump was. Uh, so it could be significant. I would, I would love to read those emails. Right. Although, I, just as I read Carter's opinion, the actual number of emails or documents that were attorney client that he was um, that Carter was saying there's a crime fraud exception that had to be turned over it was pretty small it was only about 11 i think of the rest were work product and had you know i think there were also newspaper clippings and a lot of you know the you know routine stuff back and forth but the the you know it's it's a pretty discreet number on um, just one final beat on this on the on the criminal referral part I guess the question is, when would the committee do it? Because if they wait to the end, you know, it's going to be the end of the year. And, you know, that's a lot of time, A. And B, you know, midterms, if Republicans take control of the House, that could change the political landscape for consider for how the Justice Department responds to this. I mean, why wait? Why, why not do it when they feel like they have sufficient evidence well, to do it? Then they've got it now, right? I mean, they've got yeah. a judge, you know, behind yeah. their back, backing yeah. up their This could conclusion. be our podcast. This could be our Friday pod- podcast. Yeah. Merrick well, Garland I, I announces investigation into the president. I don't see any sign they're going there <laughs> just yet. I think they're... <laughs> It's still a little <laughs> newsmaker, Danny dicey. Kleinman. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, um, that's not what we'll be talking to Pete Buttigieg about. There's a lot of other pressing issues to raise with him. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to start out with a question that's on a lot of people's minds right now, and that's soaring gas prices. Governors across the country are moving to impose gas tax holidays. We now have a federal proposal from two Democratic senators, uh, Senators Hassan and Kelly, to suspend the federal gas tax for the rest of the year. Good idea or not? I think we need to be open to any idea that can bring relief at the pump. We've done a lot. As you know, the president has uh, taken steps like releasing barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to try to uh, stabilize oil prices. And there there are a lot of ideas about relief, uh, several different variations or versions that are uh, going around Congress, too. Uh, The attraction is it could provide more relief. The downside is often that means less funding for roads, which is where those uh, gas tax dollars tend to go. Uh, But I think we just need to keep an open mind while continuing to work on the things that are more directly under our control as policymakers than things like global oil markets. And I would point to the president's agenda that goes directly to family budgets to lower the cost of insulin, 
lower the cost of prescription drugs, lower the cost of housing, childcare, uh, healthcare, because these are things that we could have a much more immediate and direct impact on than the ups and downs of global oil markets, especially at a time when you have an oil producing country going to war. So just to be clear, on the gas tax holiday idea, you say you're open to it, but I'm not hearing whether or not you think it's you know something that you're going to recommend, that you think we should be doing or not. Hey, I'm not going to come down on it here while the, the discussions are, are still going on in Congress. I'll, I'll say that we should keep an open mind about anything that can bring relief. We should also look at the bigger picture, which is, uh, all right, what are the things that are causing the most pain on a, a family budget? And of those, which are actionable, and I'm especially interested in the ones that are actionable in a durable, sustainable way. Now, one more thing that, that obviously, if we're going to talk about gas prices, we've got to talk about, which is how do we build a transportation and energy system? that doesn't leave Americans vulnerable to these ups and downs. And that's why having U.S. energy independence in the context of sustainable renewable energy is such an important national objective. The sooner we get there, the less we're going to ha be having these kinds of conversations whenever there's some kind of global shock to the system. On that point in particular, as you mentioned, the administration is trying to boost domestic oil production right now. It's urging OPEC members, including the Saudis, to ramp up oil production. How do you reconcile those moves with the stated policy of this administration to address what a lot of people have been viewed as the existential crisis of climate change, weaning the country off of fossil fuels? Well, you just use the word uh, weaning, and, and I think that that points to where we are right now, which is that we, we want to be a completely energy independent country with the energy mix of the future that, that's uh, driven by renewables. Uh, we also are where we are. And uh, sometimes you have to balance those things. I mean, one thing we think about in terms of what my department does, for example, is on one hand, we are aggressively encouraging steps that will make the use of electric vehicles easier and more affordable for everybody to drive EV adoption. We also know that most people don't have an EV. And uh, from a climate perspective, as well as a savings perspective, things like fuel economy for internal combustion engines, uh, that's going to matter like, throughout this decade and beyond. The, the cars that are being made right now that burn gas are going to be on the road for a very long time. So we can't just be talking about one piece of it and not another piece. We're, we're looking at the fuel economy for gas-powered vehicles. We're looking at accelerating the transition to EVs. And we're looking at a lot of other things all at once. And we, we got to think about that in, in this context as well, right? The solution that we have to make sure that we get to where we need to by 2030 may not be the same as the solution that we have for April uh, to try to take some pressure off family budgets. Well, let me jump in and ask. You recently said that Americans should purchase electric vehicles so they never have to worry about gas prices again. No, that's not exactly what I said. And I, I only raised that because I can't help but notice that uh, some folks are uh, very eager politically to make it sound as if we're uh, not attuned to the affordability issue of EVs, when actually uh, what I'm saying is that we need to make EVs more affordable and to put out that national charging network because we know that if a family can afford to take advantage of EVs, they never have to worry about gas prices again. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's that's where we're coming from on this. Well, at, right now, I think, as you know, the average cost of an electric vehicle is some, somewhere in the neighborhood of $55,000, whereas a, a normal compact car is about half of that price. How are you ever going to be able to bridge that gap and make electric cars actually affordable for Americans within the time frame that you're speaking about? 
So again, first of all, let's let's take a, a, an objective look at where we are. The average price of electric vehicles includes a $180,000 Porsche model that uh, certainly not something I've ever seen out in the wild. Let's look at, at what's out there in terms of for example, the, these uh, electric pickup trucks that are coming uh, coming out from uh, uh, the OEMs in Detroit, seen a lot of Super Bowl ads around those. Those start in the neighborhood of $40,000. Now, $40,000 is uh, still too much for a lot of American families, which is exactly why we have proposed, through uh, a system of tax credits and incentives, a way to reduce that upfront price to bring it into effectively the high 20s, uh, depending on how and where that vehicle is made. Uh, these proposals are about making those EVs more affordable, knowing that the more Americans buy them, the more produced, the more you get those economies of scale, and then they become cheaper as we go. Uh, but you know th that's exactly why we need to, to promote these kinds of policies. Now, I will say, uh, you know, the first electric vehicle that, that I ever, uh, Chasten and I ever had, it was a, a Ford C-Max. We got it used, but not that used, and it cost us about fourteen thousand dollars. And we plugged it in the uh, regular wall plug in our in our garage in South Bend, Indiana, and and uh, it was a plug-in hybrid, which meant that. You know, for most of our driving around the city, we never had to use gas. If we took a road trip, then we had to buy gas. And so I think another thing we have to do is just demystify EVs, that they're not all the, these super high-end luxury vehicles. And that uh, while fast charging is something we've got to do a lot of work on, if you're fortunate to live in a single family home, you already have charging infrastructure for these things. It's called the plug in your wall. Secretary Buttigieg, uh, let's turn to infrastructure. You're overseeing the doling out of almost a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending for highways, bridges, rail, uh, airports, the most, I think, since the Eisenhower administration. Tell us where you think you're really making a difference right now. And, and maybe tell us about, you know, sort of one really big project that's having real impact and something smaller that's also affecting real people in, in meaningful ways. Yeah, so uh, you know, in, in terms of recent projects, I would point to what we've been able to do with some of our discretionary grants to benefit supply chains, just to take one example of an area related to transportation, getting uh, a lot of attention and deservedly so. We did uh, just over $50 million for the Port of Long Beach to allow them to develop on-dock rail. It means it's uh, easier and quicker to get the containers off the ship, onto rail with new support track, and then move it out to where it needs to be. But uh, a lot of the projects we're doing are, are much smaller. Uh, you know, I'm from Indiana. Uh, there's a community called Tell City in southern Indiana, right there on the, uh, on the Ohio River. Uh, there was a, a, a peer project, an upgrade project of just over $1 million that, that we funded. That is going to help them move goods in, in that area. It probably means as much to Tell City as the $52 million is going to mean to Long Beach, California. So uh, we got to make sure we're continuing to support projects, big and small. And while I just said $52 million is an example, of a big one, and it is, there are multi-billion dollar projects that are going to need to be addressed. If you look at things like the Northeast Corridor, for example, and, and uh, what's called the Gateway, uh, where uh, there are tunnels that are 110 years old that we depend on every day for, uh, uh, for so much train traffic that, that if, if they ever shut down, the economic, you'd feel the economic consequences as far away as Tell City, Indiana, even though it's happening in, in New York, New Jersey. Those are some of the things that we've not had the resources to deal with. Now we're in a much better position to start to address them. So I, I don't think uh, most people can fathom what it's like to distribute this huge amount of money on the timeline uh, that, that you all are going to be doing it. How do you make sure uh, that the money is spent wisely, that there isn't waste, fraud, abuse, that sort of thing? And then specifically, how do you deal with the suspicion that you know is out there that the money is going to be doled out politically, disproportionately to blue states um, in ways that are um, aimed to help Democrats politically? 
Well, the, the way we're approaching this, and, and I can tell you it comes right from the top, is to make sure, first of all, that the dollars are spent accountably, that there is no waste, fraud, and abuse, and we have a lot of controls to, to make sure that that happens, but also that it's spent fairly. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about equity in transportation spending, and that includes making sure communities of color that have often been left out are having their needs met. It also means making sure that rural America has its needs met. And, you know, we've already gone over and above the thresholds that are set out in the law for how much uh, of these discretionary funds goes to rural projects and rural communities. Definitely not because they're known for supporting my political party, uh, but because regardless of what's a red state or a blue state, we've got to fund the needs where they exist. And you know, in, in the end, the, the, the proof of it will be in the work that gets done. Uh, we, we've tried to prove that out already in, in the investments that we've made. And of course, we're just getting started. On the equity point, just quickly, I've heard complaints from some Republican members of Congress that you know we're prioritizing projects that are sort of quality of life projects, uh, green space, parks, you know, whereas we should be prioritizing kind of nuts and bolts projects uh, that alleviate congestion in cities that have a more direct impact on the economy. Uh, what, what's your response to that? I don't think we have to pit those things against each other so much. I mean, when we talk about, uh, for example, uh, you know, moving things in a, in a smart way with regard to congestion, if we get it right, we're also improving air quality. Uh, we're also improving uh, uh, even health uh, for communities that live close to areas that are high traffic corridors with a lot of congestion. Uh, look, we're, 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 we're prioritizing things like safety, economic strength, climate, equity, and transformation for the future. And the best projects that I see don't pit those things against each other. They, they bring them all together. So even as you're trying to make sure that the money is spent equitably and without regard to kind of partisan valence, you know, in late January, Florida, Senator Rick Scott visited a billion dollar infrastructure project in the Everglades, bragged that he was proud to have helped secure the money for the project. And he, of course, voted against the infrastructure bill. And a growing list of Republicans are doing the same, House Republican Minority Whip Steve Scalise included. So what's your reaction when Republicans are taking credit for a bill that they opposed? I mean, it is striking. Right? Um, usually, uh, you you, uh, you vote for something, and then you talk about the the, the impact that it had, uh, or you you vote against something you stand by. But I think it shows how good these investments are. That even the people who tried to block them uh, go around on the back end and, and try to uh, share the credit for them when they happen. Uh, I, I think most people see through that. But at the end of the day. Uh, to be honest, the, the most important thing for us is just getting the projects done. And, and if that means somebody trying to collect political credit, uh, it, you know, in a way that's not really uh, not really consistent with, with how they voted or acted, you know, we're going to notice that. But, but I'm going to get less hung up on that because, we, uh, frankly, I don't want uh, residents or citizens of any part of the country to be punished because of the behavior of their politicians. Uh, we need to make sure that we're meeting the uh, the, the the infrastructure needs of communities, red, blue, and in between, rural, urban, and in between. And uh, we're, we're doing everything we can to strip the politics out of this mode that we're in now, which is delivery. There's a lot of politics in getting a bill passed. Now we're at the stage of actually uh, delivering these resources. And, and you know, while a trillion dollars is an extraordinary amount of money, over 600 billion of that in, in the infrastructure side of things, that could go out the door pretty quickly and not have enough impact if we don't prioritize in the right way. And so we have to make sure we're actually meeting the most important needs. Mr. Secretary, I'd like to make this a little personal. I used to be a fairly regular rider of the Washington metro system. 
I haven't been on a Washington Metro for more than two years since COVID began. Originally, because I didn't want to be in enclosed space. And since then, I've gotten used to working from home, most of which millions of Americans have done and have had little need to ride on a metro. How, what's been the impact of my behavior and millions of others on public transit systems? And how are you going to get people like me back on riding public transportation? So this is a real issue. Our, our transit systems have taken a big hit. Uh, I made a point of uh, taking the metro to get to the meeting of the Public Transit uh, Association a couple of weeks ago here in Washington. It seemed weird to drive to a uh, public transit uh, meeting, even though that's usually the, the, the protocol for how cabinet members get around. And, uh, you know, on one hand, I noticed that the, the metro was as uh, clean and efficient and effective and user friendly as it was back when I was taking it every day. And on the other hand, I noticed that, uh, uh, you know, Gallery Place and Metro Center, these big hubs where people change, did not look nearly as packed as I was used to them being at, at, at rush hour, which is when I was going through them. And this is happening across the country. We've seen more of a rebound on the bus side than we have on the subway and rail side. And that has to do with the kind of commuting patterns that you're describing. Now, I think we're still a long way from the, the next to normal, the kind of future state we're headed to in terms of the future of work. We know it's not going to look quite like the past. And so what we need to do is support transit in a way that's flexible and, and in a way that uh, recognizes how some of those changes are going to emerge. Uh, I've seen, for example, a lot of small to mid-sized transit agencies starting to experiment with an on-demand model that almost resembles an Uber or Lyft kind of TNC style, and then attaching that to their fixed route bus network. I think strategies like that are going to be very important, but I also think that uh, you know, the, the uh, underground, the, the subways and the light rail options are going to be more important than ever in the decade ahead uh, in order to accommodate the kind of growth we're seeing in a lot of the cities. And because uh, there's simply no way that we can do what we have to with regard to climate if we haven't created great options for people to not have to drag two tons of metal with them everywhere they go. And that means having superior transit as a country. But won't this mean to some extent greater subsidies, more spending to bolster public transit systems? Look, uh, you know, public transit systems are publicly funded. It's their nature. They're not designed to run as, as for-profit enterprises. There's a, a massive return, but it's not a return to the, the transit system itself. It's a return to the economy that it serves. Uh, and I think with that in mind, we should continue to support transit in a big way, but also you know, support them in taking steps that are going to save them operating costs in the long run. For example, we're doing a lot around low and no emission buses. Part of that, of course, we just need greener, cleaner buses. Part of it is that uh, the, the uh, transit agencies need, need new buses, clean or not, and, and we need to help them get them. But the third thing that's really important is that these buses over time can be uh, can require less maintenance. They have fewer moving parts and can be less expensive to fuel. So steps like that are just about pouring more money into transit. It's about saving money in the way that transit operates for the long run, even if it means an upfront capital cost, in the same way that the consumers who are weighing a price premium from a, for an electric vehicle can balance that against the fuel savings and the maintenance savings of owning one. So let, let's move to some social and kind of cultural issues that are dominating the conversation out there to some extent. Uh, there's been this huge wave of bills being pushed in state legislatures across the country that would erode the protections of gay and transgender children. Uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida on Monday signed into law one of these so-called uh, don't say gay 
bills that ban discussion um, of LGBTQ topics uh, in public schools. You're the first openly gay uh, member of a cabinet. What's your reaction to that law and uh, to those those bills uh, more generally? Look, I think bottom line is it's hurting kids. Uh, it, it's uh, making it harder to uh, be an LGBT. I mean, life is hard enough for, for let's say, a middle school, for example, when you're not LGBTQ. It's, it can be really challenging uh, for kids who are different or for uh, kids whose, whose parents are, are LGBTQ. I think about what life might be like for, for our kids uh, when they start school, if they were in a place like Florida uh, that might stop them from mentioning that they had a great time over the weekend with their dads. And so, look, this is part of a very familiar political playbook. And I think the reason this political playbook is being pulled off the shelf is that you got a lot of folks who don't have actual plans for the things that are affecting uh, so much of everyday life. Uh, they, they don't have a lot of solutions on supply chains or uh, inflation or, or infrastructure. So they're they're looking for somebody to target, to, to change the subject to these cultural wars. And, and they're really doubling down on these culture wars where, look, we're going to stand our ground and, and make sure that we, we stand with people who are vulnerable, but also point out how we got here. Uh, because at the end of the day, they're busy worrying about what books to ban. And uh, we're over here figuring out which bridges to fix. Well, speaking of Republican politicians taking advantage uh, of, of these issues, I was covering the Trump rally uh, in Georgia on Saturday yeah. when uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, far-right uh, member of Congress from, from that state, uh, took the stage and she said this to the crowd, and I'm, I'm going to read the quote, and you know what? Pete Buttigieg can take his electric vehicles and his bicycles, and he and his husband can stay out of our girls' bathrooms. And by the way, that got a huge cheer among uh, the uh, the Trump supporters and the Marjorie Taylor Greene supporters uh, at that rally. What what goes through your mind when you hear a comment like that? How do you feel when you hear that? I mean, look, again, the reason you hear somebody like that making nonsensical, literally nonsensical comments like that, I don't know what, what uh, you would do with an electric vehicle uh, in any bathroom, um, is because <laughs> they don't want to talk about what we're actually working on. They don't want to talk about, not only do they not have a plan on climate, they don't have a plan on inflation. You know, what, what we didn't hear was any kind of critique of our actual infrastructure policy, because it's a good policy. It's wildly popular and it's the right thing to do. So they're going to keep tripling down on anything that can divide and demonize and demoralize and through that capture attention, right? And I think we need to also be smart about where we send our attention. I know the most shocking thing somebody said or did yesterday gets the most attention today. But if I were to make a list of the 10 or 20 or 50 or 200 members of Congress whose commentary or thoughts or words it would be most constructive to be debating or weighing right now. It wouldn't be the two or three members of Congress who get the most attention on Twitter for whatever outrage they uh, tried to outdo each other on yesterday. Just staying on, on social issues uh, for one more beat, uh, you and your husband, Chastin, uh, adopted twins in August. Mazel tov, first of all. And you did something unusual, maybe unprecedented uh, for a male cabinet secretary. You took a month-long paternity leave. Obviously, you did this for your family, but it also sparked a conversation in this country about family leave. And I think, as you know, uh, we're, I think, the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have, you know, sort of federal paid paternity leave. There's a provision in the Build Back Better plan of the Biden administration uh, that would provide for that. It's been steadfastly opposed by Senator Manchin of West Virginia. 
And I'm just wondering, what are you doing to try to get this enacted? And have you spoken to Senator Manchin, tried to persuade him to change his mind, given him the benefit of what you've learned uh, going through this experience yourself? So bottom line is we ought to have paid leave in this country. Uh, as you correctly pointed out, it's something that uh, people in pretty much every other country and not just the wealthy countries can count on. And uh, it's something that most Americans believe is the right thing to do. I don't know how or when we'll get there legislatively, but uh, I believe we'll get there and we're going to continue pushing for it. Now, personally, it was extremely important to us. Um, uh, you know, I knew that, uh, by the way, you know, federal employees, career employees get, get 12 weeks now. And that was uh, one of the very few things to happen under the last administration that, that I strongly agree with. And I think it happened because, again, there, there's a bipartisan sense of agreement, at least, you know, among the American people. That, that it's appropriate. Uh, you know, because of the nature of the job, I obviously couldn't take a, a, a 12 weeks away. But I do think that, that leave should be available. And, and when it is available to people, that, that you ought to take it. And that's true for men uh, as well as women. And, and I'll also tell you, while, of course, I was taking care of business, anything that, that uh, couldn't wait, anything that needed my attention throughout, that leave was uh, probably the hardest I've ever worked. And I'm very, very accustomed to very hard work, uh, whether it's running for president or on military deployment or being mayor, I've never been a stranger to 80 hour work weeks. But this is the first job I've had uh, where being a dad is, that is, where, you know, for a while, work began at three in the morning and, uh, and it just went from there. That'll end eventually, but it might take a long time. Oh, it's already much better. I got, I, I got woken up at three in the morning last night, but I got to go right back to bed by 3.30 and it felt like a victory. Yeah, good. Uh, and uh, Senator Manchin, have, have you spoken to him about this? Do you plan to? I'm not going to publicize conversations that, that I'm having with uh, uh, members, but uh, obviously anybody who wants to know about uh, my personal experiences and, and, and what it means for how I come at these policies, I'm always, uh, always eager to tell them. We don't often get uh, members of the cabinet on this uh, podcast, so I want to like get a little insight into how this White House and administration actually works. Um, are there regular cabinet meetings? If so, how often? And if not, how often are you at the White House? How often are you speaking to the president? So in terms of full convenings of the cabinet, that's happened a handful of times. And, and you know, what, what you see publicly, I think we've, we've had three or four now. But there's also a lot of activity that brings cabinet members to the White House, I'd say on average, probably once or twice a week in various combinations. And this is an administration that, that really makes use of, of cabinet members uh, and includes us in decisions both within and, and sometimes beyond our, our immediate policy lanes, which is something I, I really appreciate being part of. It's an incredible team that the president has put together, one that reflects America more than any uh, that I think has ever sat uh, at that table and that has such a, a just a, a compelling combination of, of, of experiences and, and, and uh, an expertise that I'm, I'm really humbled to be part of it and, uh, and love being part of it because uh, we, we have such compelling work in front of us. Uh, you know, I'm, I, in any other era, Right. The, just one of the things from the first year, I mean, the infrastructure law alone or the rescue plan alone would be a defining accomplishment for an administration. But we're not in any other era. The things we have in front of us, opportunity wise and definitely challenge wise, take an all hands on deck response, I think. And I'm, I'm thankful to be part of White House and, and, and work for a president who uh, takes that all hands on deck part seriously. It means it sends a lot of work our way, but also uh, solicits a lot of input from us. And uh, I think uh, uh, puts us all to good use. One last question that I'm sure you'll be thrilled to answer. Um, you ran for president in 2020. 
and did a lot better than anybody expected. Uh, we don't yet know whether President Biden is going to run for re-election, but if he doesn't, will you be considering a run again in 2024? So I know this sounds like the answer I'm supposed to give. It also happens to be true, which is what I'm considering right now is what it's going to take to take the over half a trillion dollars that's been entrusted to my department and make sure the American people see over half a trillion dollars worth of value out of it. And that's tying up every gray cell that I have. And, uh, uh, and it's going to require total commitment for me. So that's where my focus is. I think uh, some people are going to have uh, a little trouble buying that you don't have enough gray space to uh, at least consider uh, these issues, but um, we uh, we totally understand. Um, Secretary, I want to thank you for joining us. It was a great discussion, and I think it helped uh, illuminate where the administration is on a lot of these issues. So thanks a lot. Really enjoyed being with you. Thanks to each of you. 